This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, April 7th, 2019 at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Mike Purcell. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Today's uh, passage comes from Philippians chapter 1, starting at verse 12. Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the, for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all, for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample glory, ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is God's Word. I'm grateful to be here with you all this morning. Uh, Restoration Road Church has been a great blessing, a great encouragement to me personally and to Redemption Church. I've been meeting with Sam for about four years now, and Sam has been a mentor to me. He's been a coach to me. He has helped me through the church planting process and through pastoring a church. And so uh, I I thank God for Sam. I thank God for this church family. Um, I thank God for the fruit that is that is happening here. Uh, Through my relationship with Sam, I've been able to see some of the things that have been taking place in and through Restoration Road Church, and I thank God for those things. I also thank you just for the way that you've been an encouragement to our whole church. Um, Your church has allowed us to use this space for some of our meetings. So we don't have a space of our own. We meet at a middle school, but we've been able to use this space for our member meetings. And so our church family has had some very special and sweet moments here in this building. We've also used it a couple times for different events. We've done a men's breakfast, ladies' breakfast. If you've ever come in here on a Sunday morning and detected a faint smell of bacon, that's on us. I apologize, or you're welcome. 
we uh, truly are grateful. So on behalf of the, our whole church family, thank you. Thank you for the way that uh, you love Jesus, the way you love one another, and the way that you are kingdom-minded. And the first service this morning, I had my two daughters in here. They're eight and five years old. I like to have them be in service every so often because uh, I appreciate honest feedback for my sermons. So a few weeks ago, uh, my oldest sat in service, and then she rode in the car home with me after church, and I asked her, what, do you, what did you think about the sermon? And she said, it was long, and it was about Jesus. I thought, I'll take it. It's my intention this morning to preach about Jesus. I make no promises regarding the length of the sermon. Our sermon text this morning comes from uh, the book of Philippians. And what a powerful passage. What a powerful passage of Scripture that we just heard. And this passage serves many good purposes for us. And one of the purposes I believe that it serves is to help shape our thinking, to shape our perspective, to help shape our attitudes according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in this letter that Paul wrote to these Christians in Philippi, whom he clearly loved, he began to describe the things concerning him. But did you notice that Paul did not provide many details regarding his circumstances? We know that he was probably imprisoned in Rome. There was a good chance he was under house arrest, chained to a guard at all times. But even those details we cannot be sure of with 100% certainty. And why not? Because Paul used virtually no ink to talk about his circumstances. Paul did not seem to be very interested in describing his arrest, imprisonment, and upcoming trial. Now, the Philippians were certainly aware of what had taken place with Paul. They knew he had been arrested and was in prison. They had even sent him a gift to help sustain him while he was in prison. But they probably had not received a firsthand account of all the drama that had unfolded and was continuing to unfold when he wrote the letter. They were probably not aware of the daily struggles that Paul faced as a prisoner of Rome. Don't you think it would have been easy for Paul to talk about all that he had gone through and all the difficulties he had to endure? And if I have a good story, I like to milk it for all it's worth. I like to squeeze every last detail out of it. I like to have a captive audience when I have a good story. For example, last month, my wife and I were traveling home from the Las Vegas area after we attended a conference, and we were in the airport getting ready to fly home. As I was walking through the airport in Las Vegas, I happened to spot the former heavyweight champion of the world, Mike Tyson. I quickly decided I needed to meet him. I needed to shake his hand. I'm not a selfie guy, but in that moment, I became a selfie guy. I got my picture taken. Now, my entire interaction with Iron Mike lasted, lasted about one minute, maybe two. But my retelling of that story to my friends, which I have now retold many times, lasts a lot longer than one minute. I like to tell them, oh, this is what I was thinking. This is what he, how he responded. I mean, I just like to make it a big thing. Now, after... I got this picture with Mike Tyson. My wife posted that picture on Facebook. And Daniel Blankenship commented on that picture. And he said, did you tell him about Jesus? And I appreciate Daniel's thinking. I appreciate where his head was at. He was thinking about the advancement of the gospel like Paul in our passage this morning. Unfortunately, the answer was no, Daniel. I did not tell him about Jesus. But thank you for publicly shaming me and exposing my failures. If I got a good story, man, I like to tell it. But Paul did not do this here in our passage. 
Paul did not give them a sensational account of his imprisonment, nor did he go into detail about how hard it was to be in chains in order to elicit sympathy from the Philippians. Instead, he did something entirely different. He turned their attention to the advancement of the gospel. He said, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. The Philippians may have been tempted to believe that Paul's imprisonment was bad news. They may have been tempted to believe that the authorities had effectively put an end to the apostles' great missionary work. But Paul assured them that was not the case. In fact, he challenged them to view things from a completely different perspective. His imprisonment was not an impediment to the spread of the gospel, but served to advance the gospel in at least two ways. First of all, the whole imperial guard became aware that Paul was in prison for Christ. The imperial guard was also known as the Praetorian Guard and was made up of 9,000 elite soldiers who were known for their military skill and loyalty to the emperor. They served as the emperor's personal security force in the imperial palace. In Paul, they encountered an unusual prisoner. He was not in prison because he had injured or murdered anyone. He had not stolen anything. He was not organizing a secret army or participating in a conspiracy to overthrow the emperor. He was in prison for faithfully and boldly preaching the gospel. Under normal circumstances, Paul would, not, would have little to no access to these elite soldiers, but because he was in prison, he had direct access to them. And he used the opportunity to share the gospel with them. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be a prisoner in charge of Paul? I imagine a prisoner coming back on duty and Paul saying to him, Sir, have I told you about Jesus? And the guard saying, really? Seriously, Paul? Are you kidding me? Yes. Yes, you've told me about Jesus like a thousand times. You ever engage in small talk, Paul? Paul was committed to advancing the gospel. He made the most of this opportunity. Instead of viewing his imprisonment as a ministry setback or a terrible discomfort compared to his normal way of life, he viewed it as a divinely appointed opportunity. The gospel advanced through his imprisonment as the soldiers learned of Christ through his witness. Let me ask you for a moment, how do you view setbacks? When you experience a setback, what is your attitude? What is your mindset? What do your thoughts go? Do you become angry and frustrated? Do you become discouraged and despondent? Brothers and sisters, setbacks tend to reveal what we believe in our heart of hearts about the sovereignty of God, about the wisdom of God, about the goodness of God. You see, as followers of Jesus, we believe that God is sovereign, wise, and good. We believe that God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We believe that God's ways are higher than our ways. We believe that God is working all things according to the counsel of his will, and we believe that God always works for the good of those who love him. So when we experience setbacks, when things don't go as we plan, when things don't turn out the way we hope, we can fall back on the sovereignty, the wisdom, the goodness, and promises of our God. We're able to step back, though we are disappointed, We are able to say, Lord, you are the one who is ultimately in control. My life is in your hands. Therefore, even though things are not going the way I wanted, I can trust that somehow, in some way, unbeknownst to me maybe, 
you have a good plan here. And your plan is better than whatever I had planned. So the first reason, the first reason that his imprisonment served to advance the gospel was because the imperial guard was able to learn about Jesus through his witness. The second reason the gospel was advancing because of Paul's imprisonment was that it inspired other Christians to become increasingly bold in evangelism. The Christians in Rome witnessed Paul's boldness when he faced being arrested. They saw his boldness after he was arrested and was facing the possibility of execution. But they not only saw his boldness in these circumstances, they also saw his joy. Imprisonment, beatings, even the threat of death did not prevent Paul from having joy and confidence in the Lord. One of the themes in the book of Philippians is that of rejoicing. In the four chapters that make up the book of Philippians, Paul used the word rejoice nine times. He told Christians that we ought to rejoice always in all circumstances. And he was living proof that you can do that as he was in prison and was rejoicing in the Lord. In spite of his imprisonment, he had joy and rejoiced in the Lord. Paul was a living testimony that the world is utterly incapable of taking away what is most valuable to gospel-believing Christians. Brothers and sisters, we can lose everything in this life. We can lose a loved one. We can lose our health. We can lose a home. We can lose a job. We can lose money. We can lose all those good things except for that which is most valuable to us, except for the best thing we have going for us. And that is the love of God in Jesus Christ. We cannot lose this and no one can take this from us. And Paul was a living demonstration that that is true. And the other believers in Rome were able to see Paul. They were able to witness his joy and the way he rejoiced in spite of his circumstances, in spite of this supposed setback. And it gave them greater boldness in regards to evangelism. They became increasingly bold and shared the gospel without fear. And Paul went on in verses 15 to 17 to clarify that some who became increasingly bold to preach the gospel did so with wrong motives, while some did so with right motives. The former were motivated by envy, rivalry, and selfish ambition, but the latter were motivated by love. We don't know exactly whom these people were who preached, false, uh, preached with false motives, but we do know that they preached the true gospel and were probably leaders in the church. We know that they preached the true gospel because if they preached a false go gospel, Paul would have denounced them. Paul would have come against them with very strong, emphatic language. He had a zero-tolerance policy when it came to anything that was contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you don't believe me, read through the book of Galatians. In the book of Galatians, Paul addressed the problem of false teachers infiltrating the church, and boy, he took them to task. He went after them hard. He did not tolerate any false teaching. But what we see here is him not rebuking these people who were preaching with false motives. And therefore, we know that they must have been preaching the right gospel message. These preachers who were motivated by envy, rivalry, and selfish ambition were probably jealous of Paul's influence. Perhaps they thought Paul's imprisonment afforded them an opportunity to, to gain a strong following of their own, to build their own platform. They believed their success would aggravate Paul, who was confined under house arrest. They thought Paul would be afflicted if their influence and reputations increased while his decreased. But they were wrong. As long as they were faithfully proclaiming the gospel, 
Paul rejoiced. What they failed to understand was that Paul was not preaching the gospel for the sake of his name. Paul was not trying to improve or protect his reputation. Paul was not particularly concerned with what people thought of him. He wanted to see Christ proclaimed and the gospel advance. If people thought less of him, so be it. If people mocked him, so be it. If his reputation took a hit, so be it. Just so long as the gospel was preached. Do you see how his love for Christ and desire to serve Christ freed him from so many of the idols that plague our hearts? Don't miss this. Here's what I mean when I talk about the idols that plague our hearts. Many of us struggle with the idol of control. We have a certain way we want things to go. We have a certain plan in mind, and when things don't go the way we want or don't work out as planned, we become exceedingly agitated. It's a nice way of saying angry. Or we become exceedingly depressed, discouraged. Many of us struggle with the idol of comfort. We have a strong desire for our lives to be smooth and easy. We think joy will be found in having the right job, having a nice house and possessions, or having plenty of leisure time. We avoid things that may be difficult or put a strain on our preferred way of life. Many of us struggle with the idol of reputation. We want others to think highly of us. We want to be respected and recognized in our homes, at our places of work, and in our community. We don't even realize how other people's opinions of us influence the things that we say and do. These things are idols in our hearts when we have an inordinate desire for these things. But there is an antidote to deliver us from worshiping these idols of the heart. And you know what the antidote is? It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul was liberated from the bondage of these idols through his faith in Jesus. Paul was a driven man. He had plans to take the gospel as far as he could go. He wanted to see churches started all over the world. He wanted to preach the gospel to people who had never heard the good news. And I don't think being chained to a guard under house arrest was part of his plans. But when he was arrested and prevented from doing the things he planned to do, he did not become angry or despondent. Instead, he rejoiced. Because he believed the gospel, he believed that God is sovereign, wise, and good. He believed that God is in control and that God works all things according to the counsel of his will and God works all things for the good of those who love him. Therefore, Paul was able to trust God when things didn't go according to his plan. As a matter of fact, he was able to trust that God's plan was better than his plan even when God's plan included imprisonment. He was able to see that many people were able to hear the gospel that otherwise would not have heard the gospel if he had not been arrested. Paul cared more about people hearing the gospel than having everything work out according to his plan. He cared more about people hearing the gospel than his own comfort. He cared more about people hearing the gospel than his own reputation. You see, the gospel frees us from the idol of control and enables us to trust the one who is in control. We're able to say, Lord, my life is in your hands. My circumstances are in your hands. I trust you. The gospel also freed Paul from the idol of comfort. Paul knew that his citizenship was in heaven and his future home with Christ in his glorious kingdom was guaranteed. Paul's hope was not in the comforts of this world, but in the joy and comfort he would experience with Christ in his kingdom. Christ was the one who secured Paul's future by giving up his own comfort, leaving heaven and taking on human flesh 
in the incarnation. Christ further gave up his comfort by subjecting himself to torture and a brutal death. Paul knew what Christ did for him, and he therefore was able to give up the temporary and unfulfilling comforts of this life for the sake of others that they might know true and eternal comfort as well. If being chained to a guard was the means through which more people would hear the gospel, then Paul would rejoice in his chains. There was no, woe is me, in Paul's letter. There was no bemoaning all the sacrifices he had to make in order to serve Christ. There was no, hey, look how hard my life is. I've got it so bad. No, there was none of that. Losing the comfort and conveniences of this world did not take away his joy in Christ and did not prevent him from serving Christ. The gospel frees us from the idol of comfort because we have a Savior who willingly gave up his comfort for us and has promised us a future with him that will make all the good things of this world pale in comparison. I once heard a pastor say that the sun shining over the Swiss Alps will be like the mashed potatoes under the heat lamp at KFC compared to the new heavens and the new earth. Wow, we must be willing to give up the comforts of this world for the sake of Christ. It is worth it. We also see that Paul felt no need to fight for or defend his reputation. The gospel frees us from the idol of reputation because we know that God adopts us into his family through faith in Jesus. When God accepts us in Christ, we no longer need the approval or acceptance of man. When God declares, you are my child whom I love, the opinions of man lose their grip on us. When we listen to what God says about us through his word, the opinions of others become so insignificant. We don't feel the need to get recognition, respect, and approval from others. We are actually free to love and serve them. That is why the other preachers were not a threat to Paul. He didn't care if they gained influence and he lost influence just so long as they were faithfully preaching the gospel. He was able to focus on loving and serving others rather than his own reputation because of the freedom that comes through believing the gospel. And the good news is that the power that freed Paul from these things is at work in us. The same gospel that changed and transformed Paul, who was a persecutor of the church, the same gospel that produced good fruit in him and freed him from the idols that tend to plague our hearts is at work in us. Brothers and sisters, we want to be a people who are continually believing and applying gospel truths to our hearts. This is the means by which God shapes us and molds us into the image of Jesus by helping to, to deepen our understanding of the gospel and apply it to our hearts and lives. We want to be people who are about the gospel. Freedom comes through believing the gospel and continually applying the truths of the gospel to our hearts. And the evidence that we are growing in applying the gospel to our hearts will be an increase in our desire to love and serve others and a desire to see the gospel advance regardless of the cost. In verses 19 through 26, Paul shifted his focus to discuss what might come of his situation. He began by expressing what may have seemed like surprising confidence when he wrote, I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. When Paul spoke of my deliverance, it may seem like he was referring specifically to his imprisonment. In other words, it might seem like he was saying, through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus, 
I'm going to get out of jail. And in verse 25, he did express his belief that his imprisonment would not end in execution. But here in verse 19, the deliverance he referred to seemed to be something far greater than release from prison. When Paul spoke of his deliverance, he used a word that is also translated salvation. And one commentator noted that Paul used this word to describe comprehensive salvation from sin's power, from condemnation under God's wrath, and ultimately from physical and eternal death at the end of history. You see, Paul was able to rejoice even even in that circumstance because he knew that it would ultimately and finally result in his salvation. Through the prayers of the Philippians and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, he would not be ashamed in life or death. He would not be ashamed whether he stood before Caesar in Rome or before Christ at the final judgment. Nothing would cause him to waver from the gospel, and therefore Christ would be honored in his body, in life or death. Then, in verse 21, Paul described how the gospel shaped his entire perspective in a very simple yet incredibly profound statement. He said, For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Everything in Paul's life served the purpose of honoring and glorifying Christ. If his imprisonment did not end in execution and his days were extended, he would have more opportunities to labor for the gospel. Ever since Christ saved him, Paul understood that his chief chief purpose in life was to serve Jesus. He was eager to use the short time he had on earth to do gospel ministry. He was diligent to preach the gospel to people who had not heard so they would repent and believe. And he was diligent to teach the gospel to Christians for their continued growth in Christ. His labor for the gospel was not a burden, but a joy. But as joyful as living and working for the gospel was, he considered death a means to great gain. He said, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. For a Christian, death is a good thing. Death is a promotion, and death is a means to great gain. Paul did not say, the scales are pretty even, but I suppose that death slightly outweighs life. No, he said, to depart and be with Christ is far better. It's not even close. What we will experience when we are united with Christ in heaven will be incomparably better than anything we will experience on this earth. Then why did Paul say he was hard-pressed between the two choices? In verses 24 through 26, Paul said, to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. He didn't want to live longer so that he could check things off his bucket list. No, Paul knew that his life on this earth was his only chance for gospel ministry. It was his only chance to preach to those who are not saved, and it was his only chance to help fellow Christians grow in their faith. Once he got to heaven, his gospel ministry would be complete. There are many things that we will enjoy once we enter the new heaven and the new earth. But there is something we won't do. Brothers and sisters, there will be no evangelism in heaven. The short time we have in this life is all we get to share the gospel with those who so desperately need to hear it. When we die or when Christ returns, 
We will have no more opportunities to tell sinners of the incredible grace and mercy shown by God through the cross of Jesus Christ. Yes, being with Christ in heaven is far better than anything we will know in this life, but this life affords us our only opportunity for gospel ministry. I hope and pray that reality will shape our perspective on how we use our limited time on this earth. God has sovereignly put people in our lives that either need to hear the gospel that they might believe and be saved or who are Christians but need to be encouraged and strengthened in the faith. We have a very limited amount of time to make the most of those opportunities. Brothers and sisters, on the day of judgment, we will not regret working hard for Jesus and his kingdom. We will not regret using our time, our energy, our money, our resources, whatever we have, we will not regret expending those things for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom on the day of judgment. We must rejoice in the opportunities God gives us, however they might come, and joyfully use our lives for the advance of the gospel. So I ask you, whom has God placed in your life? What neighbor, coworker, friend or family member needs to hear the gospel. I ask you, will you pray for and look for opportunities to tell them about Jesus? What Christian brother or sister has God placed in your life whom you can encourage and pray for? Will you work for their progress and joy in the faith? Friends, when our perspective is truly shaped by the gospel, we understand that to live is Christ, and to die is gain. In verse 27, Paul turned his attention to the Philippians and their situation, or the things concerning you. He said, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The phrase Paul used spoke to the fact that the Christians in Philippi were citizens of heaven. Another way of stating stating what he said is, just one thing, as citizens of heaven live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The reason Paul spoke that way was the people of Philippi were proud of their status as a Roman colony. Being a citizen of Rome was a great privilege that came with great responsibility. But Paul impressed upon the Christians in Philippi that they were first and foremost not citizens of Rome, but citizens of heaven. Their heavenly citizenship was vastly more important than any worldly citizenship. And that is true for us. Our citizenship is first and foremost in heaven. Any other citizenship for any Christian anywhere in the world is significantly less important than our citizenship in heaven with our King Jesus in his glorious kingdom. As the Roman Empire expected its citizens to live in a way that reflected the values of Rome, Paul called upon the Christians to live in a way that reflected the truth of the gospel. How did he call them to live a life worthy of the gospel? He called them to stand firm in one spirit, stride side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not be frightened by their opponents. The Christians in Philippi were obviously facing hostile opposition for their faith in Christ. In verse 30, Paul said they were engaged in the same conflict he was engaged in, meaning they were likely facing opposition from the Roman authorities and Roman citizens. But this was not a battle against flesh and blood. Ultimately, they were engaged in a spiritual battle, which is why Paul used military imagery to encourage them without encouraging them to wage war in a worldly manner. He encouraged them to stand firm with one spirit. The image of soldiers standing shoulder to shoulder in a battle line may have come to mind, but they weren't to stand 
shoulder to shoulder in a physical battle. They were to stand shoulder to shoulder in their gospel convictions. The Philippians were not to back down from believing and proclaiming the truth of the gospel, even if it made them unpopular. They were not to give an inch. Despite all the pressure and threats, they were to uphold all of God's word. Paul challenged them to strive side by side. Once again, he used dramatic military imagery of soldiers fighting side by side. But he was not telling them to fight side by side for a physical kingdom. He told them to fight side by side for faith of the gospel. The Philippians were to be united in living their lives according to the gospel and in proclaiming the gospel. They could not afford to be passive and they could not afford to be divided. The spiritual battle was intense all around them and therefore they needed to work together and work together for the gospel. Paul also told them not to be frightened in anything by their opponents. No matter how powerful the opposition, no matter how serious the threats, no matter how fierce the persecution, the Philippians were to demonstrate their trust and confidence in the Lord by not being frightened. Their lack of fear in the face of opposition would be a testament to the reality that God is the one who is ultimately in control, and God is the one who ultimately holds their destiny in his hands. But that did not mean that they would not suffer. As a matter of fact, Paul said something completely counterintuitive when he wrote in verse 29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Paul described the faith of the Philippians as a gift from God. It was granted to the Philippians to believe in Christ. Faith is indeed a precious gift from God. If God did not give us the faith we need to be saved, we would all remain in a state of unbelief. But then Paul said something surprising. Not only did God grant it to them to believe in Christ, but he also granted it to them to suffer for Christ. Paul described suffering for Christ as a gift from God. The suffering that Paul was speaking of here was not minor inconveniences and small discomforts. The Philippians lived in a world where it was unpopular and hard to identify with Christ. Paul told them that was a gift. After all, Jesus was the one who said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Paul called upon the Philippians to suffer well by standing firm together for the truth, by working together for the sake of the gospel, and by demonstrating their confidence in the Lord by not being frightened by their opponents. If they would do these things, it would be a sign of their salvation and their reward would be great in heaven. Friends, don't you think this is a timely word for us? We don't face persecution as Paul and the Philippians face persecution, but don't we live in a culture where Christianity is becoming increasingly marginalized? Don't we live in a time when holding to the truth of God's word makes us increasingly unpopular? Isn't there a tre tremendous amount of pressure upon Christians to abandon certain things that the scripture teaches that God has made clear? Don't we feel the weight of that? Don't we sense the pressure mounting? The Roman authorities in the first century believed Christianity was incompatible with their way of life and were therefore openly hostile toward Christians. Today, many people in our country seem to believe that the convictions held by Christians are incompatible with the American way of life. Therefore, we should not be surprised 
if hostility increases. We should not be surprised, but neither should we be afraid. Instead, we should be confident that Jesus, our King, the King of kings, holds all of history in His hands, and furthermore, He holds us in His hands. So together, let's hold firm to the convictions we have from God's Word. Together, let's work hand in hand for the sake of the Gospel. If we are mistreated, we will rejoice and love in return. We will hold fast to the truth of the gospel, but we will be gracious and kind toward anyone who opposes us because we know our battle is not against flesh and blood. No, our battle is a spiritual battle. God has placed us here at this time, in this place, to be a faithful gospel witness to this community and beyond. So let's not shrink back in fear, but let's joyfully make the most of the opportunities the Lord has given us. Philippians chapter 1 challenges us to live our lives according to the truth of the Gospel. It is so valuable in shaping our thoughts, our attitudes, and our perspective. Brothers and sisters, let us be a people who are shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us be careful not to be shaped by the culture around us. Let us be careful to guard our hearts and minds so that we don't unwittingly adopt the values of the world around us. Instead, let us press into the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us press in so that we can grow in our understanding of the gospel, so that we can continually apply the truths of the gospel to our hearts and lives. Let's pray that we will be a people who are set apart who are marked, who are characterized by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.